You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. All right, so the sermon this weekend on this third Sunday of Advent is, the, it's, it's simply called Mary's Revolutionary Anthem. Mary's Revolutionary Anthem. And we're going to be looking today at Mary's song, which we often call the Magnificat. And in just a little bit, I'll give you kind of the context of it and we'll look, we'll kind of study it and dig into it a little bit. But I just want to give an opening pass through this song um, and I, let's read it together and then and then we'll get started Luke chapter 1 verse 46 it says Mary said with all my heart I glorify the Lord in the depths of who I am I rejoice in God my Savior he has looked with favor on the low status of his servant look from now on everyone will consider me highly favored because the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. He shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors Him as God. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has come to the aid of His servant Israel, remembering His mercy, just as He promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants forever. Amen. Well, this is Mary's song. But first, we have to remember the story behind the song. There's always a story behind the song. Let's think about Mary. Mary, once again, she's a young girl, 13, 14 years old, tops. And she's a peasant who lives in the region of Galilee. I want to show you a map. I don't often do this, but I think from time to time it's good to help you to visualize where these things were so that whether in a sermon like this or in your own reading of the Bible, you'll have some type of reference point. But you'll see here, I don't know how well you can see this, but Galilee was way up in the northern part of Israel. And the region of Judea, which we'll refer to as well today, was the southern part of Israel. That's where the capital city of Jerusalem is. And then between Galilee and Judea is the region of Samaria. There are other regions on this map that we don't necessarily need to talk about today. But I just want you to get a sense of where these locations were um, just to kind of help you uh, visualize all of this. Galilee way up in the north, Judea in the south. Mary lives in this region called Galilee up in the north in a town called Nazareth. Couple things I want you to know about Galilee. Number one, Galilee was a place that was known for a lot of interaction between Jews and Gentiles. There was a very significant Gentile population in uh, Galilee. That's why in the scripture it's often referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles. But secondly, and actually more importantly for this sermon, Galilee was also, it had a reputation for being sort of a hotbed for revolutionary activity. Remember, this was during um, the height of the Roman Empire. And Rome had a tendency to be rather cruel and, and oppressive. Um, and, and they heavily taxed their subjects. 
And so it really caused sometimes, occasionally, different groups, different radical people talking about let's get together and let's stage a revolt and kick these Romans out of here. And we have record from history of numerous Jewish revolts in and around the couple centuries around which Jesus' life would have taken place. We know of multiple revolts. In fact, there was a very famous revolt that happened basically in Jesus' backyard four or five miles from Nazareth, a famous one led by a guy named Judah the Galilean. And uh, it didn't go well for him. He, he ended up getting crucified and, uh, along with hundreds of his followers. And this would have happened in Jesus' boyhood. You know, he, he, Jesus would have been walking around and he would have seen along the major highways just hundreds of crosses with corpses on them. And this would have, as it would anybody, would have made an indelible impression on his young mind. Um, but this was part of Israel's history is, man, from time to time, they would stage these revolts. And more often than not, these would-be revolutionary efforts would often find their origin in Galilee. That's where all of the hotheads live. That's, you know, if you're a Roman soldier, that's where the troublemakers are. They're way up in Galilee, all those radical people. Galilee was kind of like the Berkeley of, uh, of uh, Israel. So, um, so all of that is known to happen. And I mean, if, if there's going to be a revolt, people assume, oh, it's going to take place up there. That's where they all live. So I want you to get a sense of Galilee. And how tense it was, how much friction took place in Galilee. And, um, and I think it would help you to understand someone like Mary and her family and the people that, that lived in her town. These are impoverished, oppressed, occupied Galileans who were very zealously yearning and looking for their deliverer, the one that would come and rescue them, their Messiah. Okay, um, there was always a heavy Roman military presence in Galilee. And, and if you're a Jewish Galilean, you resent this. Like it's not enough for them to rule over us and oppress us and tax us exorbitantly. Now they got to hang over our shoulder and, and listen to every word we say like, like big brother or something. So a lot of friction in Galilee. Just like if you go to Israel today, um, there are certain places in Israel where you can feel the tension just ramps up a notch or two. If you go to Bethlehem, that's an area where there's a lot of friction. Um, there's places in Israel I don't even go. I, I've never been to Hebron. I've never been to the Gaza Strip just because of the tension, the friction. I would never take a tour group there. Um, so that's Galilee of the Gentiles during Mary's day. Now, now back to Mary. During this time in Mary's life, there were some very strange things that were happening with her older relative Elizabeth. We talked about Elizabeth a couple weeks ago. Elizabeth was the older cousin of, of Mary. She's older by a few decades, actually. And Elizabeth is married to a priest named Zechariah, and they are childless. She is barren. She's unable to conceive children, which, of course, for a first century Jewish woman, causes all kinds of deep pain and even shame that uh, she internalized from her culture. It's shameful not to have a son, not to have a child in that day and age. And so she's got a lot of that going on, but she is, at this point in her life, well beyond what would be considered natural childbearing years. So she and Zechariah have pretty much just given up hope and expectation of ever having a child. And then wouldn't you know it, 
Unexpectedly, Zechariah has an encounter with an angel who announces, your, your wife's going to conceive a child. And we looked at all of that a couple weeks ago. So she ends up getting pregnant, and she will eventually give birth to a boy named John who, within 30 years, is preaching and baptizing out in the Judean wilderness. He becomes John the baptizer, most famous man in Israel at that time. So that's Elizabeth, Mary's older relative, who is pregnant, and at the time of the event of what we're reading, she's six months pregnant. Mary, again, much younger, 13 or 14, and uh, Mary is betrothed as the wife of a man named Yosef ben Eli. That's his name. We call him Joseph. That's an anglicized version of his name, but his name was Yosef ben Eli. Um, we call her Mary, but again, that's an anglicized version of her name. This is very important today. Her name is actually Miriam. She is named after the sister of Moses. Moses had a sister, you know. And I don't want to get too deep into that story, but if you travel back about 1,200 years or so, God uses this man Moses to lead God's people out of the bondage of Egyptian empire. And through a series of plagues, they, they finally are released and they cross the Red Sea on dry ground. They get safely to the other side. Meanwhile, the Egyptian army uh, drowns in the waters of the Red Sea. And when that happens, Miriam, Moses' sister, pulls out a tambourine and she composes a song on the spot. She writes a song and some other women, they grab their tambourines and they, they start dancing and singing. These were kind of like proto-Pentecostals, I think. And they start singing this song that Miriam has written. And here's how it goes. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. That's the song Miriam writes and they begin singing. Catch this. This is going to freak some of you out. The name Miriam means rebellion and this is what you need to know about Miriam she is not some wilting wallflower or something this woman's got some fire to her she's got some spunk here you got the Egyptian army drowning in the sea right in front of her and she's like yeah praise God <laughs> tambourine out and everything that's who the wife of Yosef ben Eli is named after her name's Miriam. Her name is Rebellion. You see, just to name your daughter that in first century Galilee, that's kind of an act of defiance, you see. It's, it's a revolutionary name, you know. I, I think Mary's parents knew exactly what they're doing. They're saying, you know what, we know our history. And long ago, God raised up a deliverer to deliver us out of Egyptian empire bondage. He's going to do it again in the midst of this empire. God's going to deliver us again. So we're naming our daughter Miriam. It's going to happen. So it's a name of, of hope. It's also a name of defiance. So I think, I think as we picture Mary in our minds, if we're going to get Mary right, or Miriam, we need to imagine her. She's, um, she's got some feistiness to her. I think we see it actually in the few stories we have regarding Mary, we, we can see glimpses of that. We certainly see it in this song that we're going to look at. But I think it all makes sense when we consider the day and the time and the society in which she lived. It was the time of Caesar Augustus ruling from his palace in Rome. It was the time of Herod the Great who was king over the region that God's people dwelled in. 
You remember we, we talked about Herod a couple weeks ago, how he, um, the, the Roman Senate confers upon him this title, King of the Jews. And the very first act of Herod the Great upon receiving this title king of the Jews is he goes across the street from the Roman Senate with his friend Mark Anthony and they walk into the Roman temple of the god Mars, the Roman god of war, and he makes a sacrifice of worship. The king of the Jews makes a sacrifice of worship to the Roman god Mars, the god of war. Because one thing Herod was really good at was war. He wasn't so good at being a faithful Jew. But he's very good at being a ruthless dictator. So it's at this time that all of these events are happening. And, and if we're going to understand this story well, we've got to see that context. That's what Luke wants us to... That's why he mentions Herod and Caesar Augustus and all these guys. It's not just you know, to help us situate it historically, but he wants us to know. In the time of Caesar Augustus, in the time of Herod the Great and all these people, the Lord showed up to Mary, Miriam. That's exciting to me. I just, I just, it gives me goosebumps. So here you have this young teenage girl in her little hovel in backwater Nazareth, and all of a sudden an angel appears to her. It's only one of two angels that we're, we give, we're given the name in the Bible. There's Michael and then there's Gabriel. But Gabriel appears to Mary and says, Rejoice. Rejoice, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And you will conceive and bear a son. And you're going to name him Yeshua, which is salvation, because he will begin to save his people. And, and Mary's head is spinning, and she's like, how can this be? I've never even been with a man. The angel says, oh, don't worry about that. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. It's going to be a miraculous conception. And Mary says, I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be unto me according to your word. The very next thing that happens, besides the angel leaving her, <laughs> is Mary travels south from Galilee up in the north all the way to Judea to the home of Elizabeth. Probably in Bethlehem. I don't know for certain, but it's immaterial. But she travels to the home of her older relative Elizabeth. She walks in and she gives this Jewish greeting to her six months pregnant cousin. Says, Shalom. It's the typical Jewish greeting to this day. Shalom. And that very moment... The Holy Spirit comes upon Elizabeth and the baby in her womb leaps and Elizabeth says, she just begins to prophesy and she says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now at this time, Elizabeth wouldn't have known and she certainly would never have expected that Mary would actually have a baby in her womb that very moment. But she speaks, it's just this ecstatic prophetic utterance. And Mary, whose life is being turned upside down, and she's probably filled with all kinds of anxiety, and, and she doesn't know what to make of what's happened to her. Her head's still spinning from this encounter with the angel. But here her cousin pronounces, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And it's just this incredible confirmation to this young girl, and she's overwhelmed, and she bursts forth in song that very moment. But before we look at Mary's song, what I want to show you first is that she adapts this song from much earlier material. And it goes back a thousand years. We meet a woman at the very beginning of the book of 1 Samuel called Hannah. And Hannah, just like a number of women in the Bible story, in the biblical story, she's barren. 
She's childless. She's aching and yearning for God to make this right. This shouldn't be. And she's so pained in her soul that she cannot bear a child. But Hannah goes to the Lord in prayer, and she makes a vow to God, and she says, God, if you'll give me a son, I will dedicate him to you. And God hears her prayer, and Hannah conceived, and she would give birth to a son who will be called Samuel, and he'll become the first of the really great prophets of Israel. And Hannah keeps her vow. When Samuel turns three years old, Hannah takes young Samuel to the tabernacle, and she brings him for dedication. And from that point on, Samuel will live and serve in the tabernacle under the priest Eli. But when Hannah brings Samuel and presents him to the Lord in the tabernacle, she sings a song. Something about women and songs in the Bible. She sings a song, Hannah's song. And I want to read a portion of it to you. It won't be on the screen. But I want you to hear this portion of Hannah's song. And I want you to see how similar it sounds to Mary's song. This is really where Mary draws a lot of her material from. So listen to this portion of Hannah's song. She says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord has made me strong. The bow of the mighty is now broken, but the feeble are now made strong. Those who were well fed are now hungry, and those who were hungry are now well fed. The childless woman now has seven children, but the woman with many children wastes away. The Lord lifts up the poor from the ash heap and the needy from the garbage dump, and he sets them among the princes, placing them in seats of honor. For all the earth is the Lord's, and he has set the world in order. He gives power to his king. He increases the strength of his anointed one. This is Hannah's prophetic song composed a thousand years before Mary was born. And it's a prophetic song that imagines a great reversal. You, you might say it like this. The big theme of Hannah's song is the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And it's good news for the poor. Now listen again to Mary's song and I want you to hear the similarity. And we'll put it up on the screen for you. I want you to hear the same themes in Mary's song. Once again, she walks into Elizabeth's home. Shalom. Elizabeth just suddenly is inspired. She says, blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And Mary bursts forth with this prophetic song. It says, with all my heart, I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God, my Savior. He has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Look, from now on, everyone will consider me highly favored because the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him as God. Watch this. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel, remembering his mercy just as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants forever. So just notice how similar these songs are. Just a couple examples. Hannah says, the bow of the mighty is now broken, but the feeble are now made strong. In other words, the weak are made strong, the strong are made weak. Reversal. 
And then she says, those who are well-fed now are hungry, but those who are hungry are now well-fed. Reversal. Everything's being turned around. Everything's being turned upside down, you might say. She says, Hannah says, the Lord lifts up the poor from the ash heap and the needy from the garbage dump. He sets them among princes. I love that image. Here's a, here's a human being made in God's image, living in the squalor of abject poverty, living on the edge of the garbage dump. And God says, come here, come here. I'm going to lift you up and I'm going to set you in the palace with the royal family and you're going to share the table with the king himself. So you see Hannah's song reversing everything, this great reversal turning upside down. Now Mary's revolutionary song, she says stuff like this. He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He will cast down the mighty from their thrones, and he has lifted up the lowly. You know, the, the Roman Empire is not going to like that song. King Herod is not going to like that Christmas carol. Herod's going to say, you know what? Stick with jingle bells. I don't like that one about kings getting cast down from their thrones. Just sing Rudolph. Sing Frosty the Snowman. Don't sing that one about kings getting pulled down from their place of power. This is revolutionary language, is it not? I mean, this is strong stuff. This is not uh, a, just a little mild-natured woman who knows her place this is a woman who is stepping into her god-ordained role in god's vision for israel with boldness and courage and this baby she has in her womb that they're singing about he's going to be born he's going to grow up and he's going to begin to preach and he's going to start saying stuff like this in the Sermon on the Plain, which is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. What sorrow awaits for you who are rich, for you have your only happiness now. What sorrow awaits you who are prosperous now, for a time of awful hunger awaits you. What sorrow awaits you who laugh now, for your laughing will turn into mourning and sorrow. You know, it shouldn't be any wonder why Jesus was crucified after only three years of preaching. John the Baptist lasted about a year. Jesus got about three years. But the wonder is not that Jesus was crucified after three years of preaching. The wonder is that he was able to stay alive for three years after preaching like that. Because when you show up saying things publicly like a whole new order has come called the kingdom of God and it's here now. It's in your midst. It's right in front of your face. There's a whole new arrangement of human life and society under my reign. Come and live under my reign. I'm inviting you into my kingdom. I'm inviting you to confess me as Lord, not Caesar. Your true citizenship belongs to that kingdom. That's a challenge to the powers that be. That's a challenge to the way things are being presently run, where blessed are the powerful and the prestigious, and lowly and woe to the meek and the hurting and the mourning. 
He's announcing a great reversal, a turning of things upside down. And when you're doing that, the powers and principalities are going to fight back. And that's why the Jesus movies need to show this that we talked about last week. And it's no wonder in the eighth beatitude, he says, blessed are you who are persecuted for the sake of things being made right for the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Now, here's, um, here's where I want to close with you today. How do we in this room or watching on the stream, how do we hear this as good news? How do everybody, how does everyone listening to this, how do we hear this as good news? Because I think if we had an honest moment this morning, we could see how when you look at the scope of the globe today, we here in this room as Americans, I know there may be some folks here that are struggling right now. Maybe you're struggling. But compared to the entire world as Americans, we are lucky. And we're taken care of. We've got something over our heads. We're well fed. We are, in the grand scope of things, we're at the top of the pyramid. We're doing pretty well, myself included. So how, how do we hear this as good news? That's the question I want to explore with you in, the, in closing and reflection. And I want you to listen carefully to what I'm going to say. We do it by identifying our own place of poverty and our own place of pain. We don't just stand in our place of privilege and say, God bless me. But we find our own place of pain, our own place of poverty, and we wait there to meet Jesus because that's where Jesus comes. When he announced his eight Beatitudes, he says it like this, blessed are those who are mourning. Blessed are the meek. Luke's version, blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for things to be made right. You have this ache, this yearning in your soul. Something's broken. Something's not right. This should not be. And I'm longing for God to come and set this right. We have to identify that place of ache, that place of yearning, whether it's you personally, whether it's somebody you know in your family, or whether it's people somewhere around the globe, where is there an ache? Where is there mourning? And how can I solidify myself with that? As Hannah says, he's going to come to your ash heap. That's where he's going to come. That's where he's going to meet you. He's going to meet you in your garbage dump. That's where Jesus shows up. That's where the kingdom of God is birthed. It belongs to the poor in spirit, the meek the morning, those who are craving for things to be made right. So where is your ash heap? That's my question to you. Where is your garbage dump? You say, Ryan, I don't really have any garbage dumps. I don't have any ash heaps in my life. Well, I've got no gospel to preach to you today then. I've got nothing to say. If I were you, I'd just go on singing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, you know, because that's all Christmas is going to be for you if you don't have an ash heap. If you don't have a garbage dump, if you don't have a place of pain, a place of sorrow and brokenness, it's just you and Frosty this Christmas. If we learn the lesson of Mary's song, we make this really important discovery. Jesus isn't coming to the penthouse of our privilege and prosperity. Jesus is coming to meet us at the garbage dump of our pain and poverty. So Jesus touched the lepers and he healed them. Why? Because they knew they were sick. 
They knew they were terminal. They knew they were hopeless. They knew they were exiles and outcasts in their society. They knew they were sick, so Jesus touched and healed them. What does he say? He says, I've not come for the righteous. You say, well, I'm righteous. Jesus is like, I'm not looking for you then. Those of you who are well-fed, I have nothing to offer you, Jesus says. You have to find the place of your pain, your poverty, your sorrow. So Jesus feeds the multitudes because they know that they're poor and hungry. Notice Jesus doesn't go to the palace of Caiaphas and multiply filet mignon. He goes to those poor peasants in broken down Galilee who are hanging upon his every word and that's to whom he multiplies the loaves and fish and feeds them. Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house. Now, Zacchaeus was a wealthy man. He's a very rich man. Jesus doesn't discriminate rich or poor. But what, what we need to see about Zacchaeus is Jesus doesn't come to Zacchaeus' house because he's rich. He comes to Zacchaeus' house because Zacchaeus knows he's messed up. He knows he's a broken man. He's a sinner with a soul that is sick with greed and avarice and, and this habit of using people as objects for personal gain. Zacchaeus knows he's got a soul that's been ruined. And that's why Jesus comes to Zacchaeus. And the interesting thing in the story, if you read it, Zacchaeus has Jesus over with a bunch of his other buddies, tax collector buddies, and it doesn't even say anything about Jesus doing anything at Zacchaeus' house. He doesn't preach a sermon so far as we know. He may not have said anything. He was just present. He was just there. He was with him. He was identifying with him. And, and at some point, at some point in the middle of the meal, Zacchaeus just stands up and announces. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give up to half my wealth to the poor of Jericho. And if I have defrauded anyone of their money, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus says, yes, today salvation has come to this home because this man too has proven to be a child of Abraham. But notice he doesn't go to Herod's house until he's arrested and has to. But even then, he's got nothing to say to Herod. It's not the palace of privilege, but the garbage dump, the ash heap where Jesus will appear. So Jesus comes to your ash heap to lift you up and make you a prince or a princess. He comes to your garbage dump to give you more than what you could ask for. He comes to your place of pain and sorrow to turn it into a place of joy and laughter. So just again, I say this. If you have no pain, if you have no emptiness, if you have no brokenness, if you have no ash heap this morning, if you have no garbage dump, then I have nothing to say to you today. I have no gospel. I don't even know what to say. Just keep singing secular Christmas carols or something because Jesus isn't coming for you. But if you can find a place of pain, of poverty, a place where you don't have it all together, a place in your life where you're, you're like, I'm sitting in the ash heap, a place where you say, you know what, I may live in a mansion, but I've got a garbage dump of sin in my life. Then sit and wait in that ash heap. Sit and wait in that garbage dump because that's where Jesus is going to, he's going to come to meet you. You might do that just right now. Would you just sit up straight for just a moment and close your eyes? We're going we're gonna to move into just a time of prayer and reflection this morning. I want you to just explore right now with the Holy Spirit. Let's just sit here, and I want you to find the place 
It may be your place of sin, or it may be the place where you've been sinned against. It may have nothing to do with sin. It may be the place of your sorrow. See, I'm thinking right now of our dear sister, Wanda Nair, who had the memorial service for her husband yesterday morning here. And I know she's sitting in an ash heap of sorrow. And she doesn't want to sit there. And I, I don't want her to have to sit there either. But what I do know is that in a very, very mysterious, paradoxical way, she's sitting in a good place because she's sitting in a place where Jesus will come to her. So right now, I want you to find the place of your profound disappointment, your poverty, your sorrow, your pain, your brokenheartedness, your insufficiency, your lack. Just sit and wait. That's what Advent is. It's waiting. You just wait. You hope. You long. You ache. You hunger. You don't even have to pray much. Jesus knows you're there. You're aware that you're waiting. But just sit, not in the place of your privilege, not in the place of your strength, not in the place where you have it all together. Sit in a place where it's all falling apart, where your dreams have gone up in smoke, and there's nothing but anxiety. Sit in the place of your pain and your sorrow, your emptiness, your brokenness. Just sit there and wait. Because this is the gospel I have to preach to you. Jesus is coming. In some beautiful, unanticipated way, Jesus is coming. And when He comes to you, He's going to lift you up. He's going to say, all right, you've been sitting there long enough. I'm going to lift you up. And He says, I'm going to bring you to this table. And you know, when you come to Jesus' table, you know what you're... You know what you are? You're a child of the King. You, you felt like you were a failure sitting in the ash heap. You felt like you were an utterly broken person sitting in that garbage dump. But Jesus comes to you and He brings you to His table and He makes you to sit among princes. You're a child of the King. And everything's going to be alright. There's a divine reversal coming into your life some way, somehow, at some time. Jesus is coming. And it's good news. You might have a multi-million dollar mansion, but you got to sit there like Zacchaeus and say, I got all this stuff, but I also know I'm sitting in a garbage dump of my own brokenness, my own inadequacy. And that's what Jesus comes to. He's attracted to that. So you're sitting here and Jesus says, are you hungry? Come. Are you thirsty? Come. Are you sick? Come. Are you a sinner? Come. Are you undone? Come. Are you broken? Come, I invite you, Jesus says, to my table. And that's where the healing will begin. Where I'll make a prince or a princess out of you. Where I'm going to restore you. I'm going to make things right. And you'll become the person you were always meant to be. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.